The following audio is from White River Christian Church. More information about White River is available on the WRCC mobile app or at wrcc.org. Well, good morning. I'm going to apologize up top. I am not as cute as those little kids are. So I apologize for that now as we head into this morning. You just get to look at me this morning. Uh, We are starting a new series called One Hit Wonders. Uh, We're taking a look at books of the Bible that have one chapter to them. I'm pretty sure most of us in the room probably haven't read those recently. Okay, so maybe you have. I might be wrong, but maybe you haven't. And so we're going to do that for the next four weeks. And before we kick that off, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll jump in. Jesus, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to come and to sing those words. Great is your faithfulness to us. And uh, we ask this morning that you would continue to be faithful for us uh, and to us. We know this morning we're going to need your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would move in our hearts to be able to not only hear these words, but put into practice as well uh, what you have modeled for us. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. So uh, for me, my swimming career started at the age of four. My brother started swimming at six. I joined a summer swim club, and I'm pretty sure my mom just didn't want to deal with me the entire practice, and so she put me in the swimming pool as well. I started at four years old in what was called splashers. That's pretty much all we did, okay? Like, I can remember blowing bubbles, kicking my feet. I don't think we actually ever swam anywhere. Um, That's just, we just got in and messed around. And that's where my swimming career started. It ended my senior year of high school. That was kind of the pinnacle. And uh, high school swimming was so much fun. Here's why. We never lost a dual meet. We never lost a county or sectional meet. And we swam a state all four years I was in high school. Now, that had existed for a couple years before I got to high school. And it was fun to carry on that tradition. But that didn't happen by accident. Right? That happened because our swim coach had a strict regiment for us that looked a little bit like this. I would get up uh, somewhere around 5.30. We'd be in a pool by 5.45. I'm just going to confess right now, I don't remember getting to swim practice in high school in the morning. Okay? Like, that's how tired I was. Like, not safe, not a good idea. I got a really funny story for some other time about one of my uh, buddies that might have fallen asleep and hit a fire hydrant. Anyways, um, I'll tell you that one later. So... In the pool for about an hour and 20 minutes, we'd jump out, we'd swing by the grocery store, get some donuts, head to school. Uh, During school, we were required to be in weightlifting, so at some point during the day, we lifted weights. Uh, And then right after school, we were back to the pool for another two and a half hours of practice. Often days during swim season, I would fall asleep at the dinner table waiting on my mom to cook the meal. Like I was just exhausted. Uh, You didn't have to worry about Lance being out during swim season late at night. I was asleep by 8.30, okay? Uh, it was a, a strict regiment. In fact, uh, it would came down to how many uh, yards we swam every single day. We, we increased that every day throughout the season of swim practice. And to be honest with you, we were, like when it comes to dual meets, we never lost one of those. We were very, I'll just go ahead and say cocky. Um, we chose not to swim the races that we actually swam. We chose to swim the ones that we were the weakest at just for practice, um, I know, that's bad, isn't it? But that's what coach wanted us to do, and we would still win. Um, and so we were just, I mean, all the way down to what I was eating. Uh, coach told us, we, the parents at the beginning of the year, like, no joke, we need to eat between six and 8,000 calories a day. Now, my favorite coupon my mom would give me was the buy one, get one free foot-long Subway subs. And I would go get two foot-long subs and eat them and still be hungry, okay? Colcat Trio, enemy ball sub, boom. Okay, I ate that a lot. 
or during swim season, and I'd still be hungry. How is that even possible? I can't even eat one now. Anyways, it was all this strict training regimen. In fact, Coach Cavanaugh, Coach Cav is what we called him, uh, his training regimen became a gold standard for like training swimmers uh, in Indiana back in the 90s. In fact, Columbus North, uh, eventually Carmel would start doing the same thing we were doing. Like all these schools started to pick up doing the same thing. One of the greatest things, the best time of season was when we did the taper. So like we'd be building this strict regiment, tons of yards, and we get to that point where we start backing off the yards headed to the state meet. And the, the, the practice before the state meet, we would swim 250 yards. It wasn't even worth getting in the pool in my mind. But anyways, we got in, swell, swam about 15 lengths of the pool, and we'd get out and be like, Coach, what was that for? He's like, just wait and see. And man, when we hit that pool at state, it was like we were skimming across the top of the pool. It was great. Okay? Now, I tell you all that because there's a gold standard, right? The gold standard. And I was like, what's that, what does that mean? We say that. We use that phrase. Where did it come from? So I look back, and it's actually from our nation's history. Um, we had, at one point, used gold as the main means of currency. And so we figured out paper currency based off of gold because the gold was the very best. And so they started to use this idea, this gold standard. Now, somewhere in the Depression, we decided to move away from that um, and no longer use that as uh, uh, the, the main line for currency as far as gold goes. But the, the phrase still stuck. And so I, I looked it up, gold standard, the best, most reliable, or most prestigious thing of its type. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you know that there is a gold standard when it comes to forgiveness? His name is Jesus Christ. If you're talking about the best, the most prestigious, the greatest of all time, the, the standard, it's Jesus. I mean, his entire life was built around coming here for us to eventually die on a cross so that you and I didn't have to experience the punishment for our sins. And instead, we get the free gift of forgiveness, which you also call grace, right? He is the gold standard. So that means for you and I who call ourselves followers of Jesus, this is what, for you and I, this is what we're called to, and this is what I want to remind you of today, that we are the embodiment of Jesus' gold standard of forgiveness. Remember when I prayed, we're going to need the Holy Spirit's help? Like, I don't know about you, but to me, that like, that's intimidating. Like, I'm supposed to forgive the way Jesus forgave you and I. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really do that all that well. In fact, as I started to look at those three phrases, most are the, the best, most reliable, most prestigious, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit just started writing uh, in my notes uh, for me. And I had these questions that just came out of nowhere. How are you doing on being the best at forgiveness towards those you don't know well? A guy that cuts you off on the highway? And not good at forgiveness there. The waiter that spills your drink in your lap. The person on the other end of the line in the customer service that you just called. How good are you? Are you the best at forgiveness with those you don't know? Or how are you doing at being the most reliable at forgiveness towards those that don't know Jesus in your life? You know, that next door neighbor who decides to cut their lawn at 6.30 a.m. on Saturday who does that? Or, or maybe it's that person uh, that as a, a work who, who you know is cutting corners and cheating and, and 
they're asking you to do the same. Or maybe it's uh, somebody in your family. You know, you're choosing to raise your kids a certain way and they don't understand it because they don't know Jesus and they're judgmental towards you. Are you being the most reliable at forgiveness towards those who don't know Jesus? And then this one. How are you doing on being the most prestigious at forgiving fellow Christ followers? How are you being the most prestigious? It's the person at church that you got in a conflict with and they said some things and so now you just avoid them in the lobby. Or maybe it's a person from your small group who you said some confidential things and somehow it ended up being told back to you by people that aren't in your small group. Or for like my wife, you know, when her husband gets mad at her yesterday for not calling the doctor about medication she was supposed to have refilled for one of the kids. How are we doing at forgiveness? Because you see, church, you and I, we're supposed to be different. And if you and I can't figure out forgiveness for you and I and towards you and I, how in the world are we going to do it for people that are outside of this room? This is, this is it. We are called to embody Jesus' forgiveness. And here's the thing. It's, it's not easy. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not really good at asking for forgiveness. I don't like doing that because that means I was wrong. And I'm never wrong. That's a joke. You can laugh. It's okay. My wife would tell you that's not true. But I'm also not real good at offering forgiveness. Now, being quick to say, yeah, yeah I, I'll, I understand, it's okay. I forgive you. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a book of the Bible that addresses just that. It's just one chapter. It's Philemon. You can find that in the table of contents. Just kidding. Uh, it's in the New Testament right before Hebrews. You might need to go to your table of contents because it's only one page, so you could miss it pretty quick. I want to give you a little bit of context so you know. I'll say this often. You'll probably hear this more than one time out of my mouth, but context is king. We need to understand who, what, when, where, why, other things so we can understand the, the idea of what this letter is. And this letter is written by Paul to Philemon. Philemon uh, is a convert that, that Paul led to Jesus. Now he is a pastor, he's an he's a evangelist in Colossae, and so he and Paul are kind of equals in what they do now. Uh, however, he's writing to him uh, because Philemon has had a slave who's run away, and Paul has met this person, turned them towards Jesus, and is now sending them back. So again, it's a, it's, it's a very personal letter. Out of all the letters Paul wrote, this is probably one the most personal we ever see him get. Uh, you will also notice in this letter that he never directly, this is the only letter he doesn't directly reference Christ's death and resurrection. Every other letter, he directly covers that. He does not in this one because it's more of a personal letter. Now, the other thing you need to understand before we read this is that slavery was just a reality in the Roman world. Things we read about and that are described in the Bible are not necessarily things we prescribe, that we would be okay with. We obviously are not okay with that in this day and age. But back then, that was normal functioning life in Rome. Rome would take over other little uh, cities, and as they did, they would take those people as uh, slaves to the Roman Empire. In fact, it is even said uh, that there were more slaves in Rome than there were Roman citizens. 
And so you got to understand, this was a reality of the day. One of the realities of this was that if you were to come upon somebody's uh, slave who had escaped, your job uh, was to return them back to the owner, to encourage them to go back and or return them yourself. Okay? So having understood all of that, this letter is from Paul, who is in prison, and he's writing to Philemon about one of his slaves who's escaped. His name is Onesimus. I'm going to read the whole letter in its entirety, 25 verses. So here we go. This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. I'm writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker and our sister Epiphia, and to our fellow soldier Archippus and to the church that meets in your house. May God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, give you grace and peace. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, Because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That is why I'm boldly asking you a favor. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this request from me, Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to the both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I am in chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, my, yeah, thank you for laughing at that. I appreciate that. Yes, my brother, please do this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will and do do what I ask and even more. One more thing. Please prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now here's the thing. Paul is writing to Philemon about one thing and one thing alone, and that is forgiveness. Now, you hear it in there. If you uh, look back, he's kind of buttering Philemon up a little bit, right? Like, I thank my God for, for you because I always hear about all these great things you're doing as a result of your relationship with Jesus. Don't forget, I'm an old man and I'm also in prison for sharing the good news of Jesus. Right? Like, I mean, you can, you can tell, like, okay, let's just get to it. You know, like, come on. You know, Paul, let's just, what, what are you asking here? Why are you sending me a letter? Now, 
he does eventually get to that. But I, I need you to understand, and I, I need you to kind of picture this. So I, I, this is, let's just jump into the LSV. This is the Lance Stockton version. This is not actually biblical. I'm just going to preface that right now. But we have to understand what is actually taking place. Right? Because Paul's written this letter. He's in prison, so he can't deliver the letter. But he wants to deliver a letter to Philemon, telling him, hey, I need you to, to forgive Onesimus. So who does he send to deliver a letter? Onesimus. Think about that for a second, right? Now I picture it like this. Like he's got his, his property and, and all his little houses and homes. He's got all his family members, his slaves. Uh, everybody's doing their work out in the fields. Um, he is uh, there in his you know, front lawn is the way I picture this. And through the front gate, no, thank you, sir. Um, through the front gate comes Onesimus. No, no, the way I, I picture this is like all the slaves are working. All of a sudden, one by one, they start to stop, like, and they start to whisper to is, is that Onesimus? Didn't he run away and steal from Philemon? This ain't going to be good. What's going to happen right now? You know, like, and as he's walking down the main path, they're all stopping working and just staring because they're like, something's about to go down. Now, here's what you need to understand is if, a slave was returned to its owner, one of three things would happen to that slave. One, they'd be beaten within an inch of their life. Two, they'd be branded so they would know whose they were the rest of their life. Or three, they'd be executed on the spot. All three, as examples to the other slaves, this is what happens if you try to escape. And so I imagine all the slaves stopping and just watching. And can you imagine Philemon for a second? This guy's not only escaped, but he stole from you most likely. And here he comes with letter in hand, head held high, walking down the main entrance to my house. Here's this from Paul. And I, at that point, I, I, I can't imagine the emotions that Philemon must have going through his body. What he's thinking. Here, read this. And, and then Philemon opens this while he's staring at Onesimus. And he's reading Paul's words. Verse 15. It seems you lost Onesimus for a while. Well, no kidding, Paul. He ran away. And he stole some stuff from me when he did. Thanks for that. So that you could have him back forever. I don't know if I want him back forever. He's no longer a slave to you. He's more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. You see, what Paul's asking Philemon to do is something that would not have been done in that day. He's asking him right there before everybody that's watching to forgive Onesimus, to embody Jesus' forgiveness, mind you, that he's also experienced, to model that to Onesimus in front of everybody. Because the slaves are thinking, he's dead. This, this is what should happen. He should be carried off and executed right there in front of all the slaves. He fled, he stole, and then he showed back up on his own accord. That's what should happen. And instead what Paul's saying is, I want you right now to embody something so different. You want to know how you can look different as a Christ follower outside of this room? It's to figure out forgiveness. It's to figure out forgiveness. You know how you do that? You gotta start practicing it. If we can't forgive one another for little, us who, who literally share the same faith, 
share the same Savior, and we'll share the same eternity. Can't figure out how to forgive each other? How in the world are we going to do it out there? Why in the world would anybody want to believe what we have to say about Jesus if we can't figure that out between just us? Paul says, hey, listen, he left a slave, but he's coming back a brother in Christ. And yeah, he's still your slave, but now he knows Jesus. So here's, what, here's the deal. You got to forgive him. You got to do it right now. You got to forgive him. Forgive him. Verse 17 says, so if you consider me your partner, which we know he did, welcome him as you would welcome me. That might be just as hard as forgiving him. If Paul came, he'd open up a room, he would kill the fattened calf, like he would throw a festival and a party to thank him. Paul, this guy escaped from me and stole from me. That's what my thought is if I'm finally. Then you hear this, and this is where we reference Jesus, but not actually, right? If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. Paul's willing to take on Onesimus' debt freely. Who took on you and I's debt freely? Jesus. You see, Paul, Paul gets this. Paul understands this. Paul knows this. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. I won't mention that one day you were just like this. You needed Jesus' forgiveness. And I led you there. I helped you figure it out and find it. And now I'm asking you to do the exact same thing for a guy who's already found it. Mm. I don't know if you're picking up, but this is like one of those moments where you get like secondary like tension, you know? Like my son gets secondary embarrassment. It's hilarious when it happens, but like somebody else is being embarrassed and he's embarrassed for some reason. Like this is one of those moments where it's like you want to kind of throw up because how do you be Philemon in this moment, right? And what do you choose to do? How are you going to work this out? I mean, this guy just walked in and handed you this letter asking you, by a guy who you respect and love, to forgive him. And now you have to figure this out. You see, Paul understood and, and is telling us in this one-hit wonder that our job is to embody Jesus' gold standard of forgiveness, It's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it, right? It's not easy. But Jesus is the one who forgave us, and so therefore we're called to forgive others. Paul points Philemon to that gold standard. And so how do we do that? How do we do, how do we, if we're going to follow in Philemon's footsteps, how do we do that? What does that look like? And so I started to ask myself that question, and and I came back to this passage, Colossians 3.13. Paul also tells us this. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. You want to know how we do it? We take a look at how much we've been forgiven. Because when we remember just how much we've been forgiven, we are compelled to embody forgiveness. Let me say that again. But when we remember how much we've been forgiven... We take a second to, to think about how, I don't know about you, uh, already today, 11.45, I could probably sit here and for, ask God for forgiveness for a few things already. 
But when I, re- when I reflect on that, remember that, what does that do? It, it, it causes in me this desire to offer forgiveness to other people. It softens my heart towards those who need forgiveness in my life. And so I'll ask you, I'll put it to you this way. I'll ask this question because this is a question I ask myself. When was the last time you confessed your sins and asked for forgiveness from Jesus in prayer? Or you're like me, like, I, I go to pray, I'm like, hey, Jesus, I need this to happen, I need this to happen, and here's the timeline it needs to happen, and if you can make this happen too, it'd be great. And yeah, I, I pray for these people too, to this. No, no, no. When was the last time you sat down and said, hey, Jesus, here's how I fell short yesterday. My conversation with my spouse. The way I handled that waiter at dinner. What I was thinking in my mind but never said out of my mouth to my coworker. When was the last time you got that specific? Because you see, that's, that's what we're called to do. We're called to confess our sin before Jesus and to ask for forgiveness. We already know we're forgiven. But why, does Jesus, why would Jesus then want us to do that? Why would he want us to stop and actually pray and, and list those things? So that you know how much you've been forgiven. So that you can embody forgiveness. How are you going to do that if you're walking around thinking, man, I'm, I'm doing great today. No, you're not. You're fooling yourself. I'm fooling myself. When was the last time you sat and asked God for forgiveness, specifically for the ways that you've fallen short? This past week we had uh, our staff meeting, and Andrew was leading us in our devotion. And at one point in the devotion, he said something that just smacked me in the forehead. He said, new, new study has been released by Barner. Barner's always doing studies when it comes to faith. 41% of non-believers do not care what you have to say or they're just not going to listen. 41%. They don't care what you have to say. They don't care. You know what that tells me? (laughs) If we lived out forgiveness differently than the rest of the world, we wouldn't have to say anything. They'd see something different in us. Then maybe, then maybe, they would care what we had to say. What's that forgiveness? How are you embodying gold standard Jesus set for us? Onesimus, we don't know. This drives me nuts. I don't know if it drives you nuts. We have no idea what happened. I get done reading the letter, I'm like, like flipping the page, I'm like, there's no answer. Philemon 2, you know, like, what happened? We don't know. I read in a few commentaries this past week that in some other manuscripts that aren't tied into Scripture, but at the exact same time, uh, there's, there's this evangelist in, in Central Asia named Onesimus in the years afterwards that would bring Jesus to places that had never been brought before. My hope is that's the same guy. Do I know that for a fact? I don't, and we won't. But that's my hope. And the truth is, when it comes to forgiveness and, and what you need for forgiveness for and who you need to forgive, I don't know that. 
There's not like another page for me to turn and, and to hear about your life or know that unless you come tell me. I don't know. But what I do know is that we're called to do it. And I know what you're going to say. I know this because it's the same thing I said. This, I said this a year and a half ago because I'd been hurt more than I'd ever been hurt by somebody who claims to be a Christ follower in the church. But Jesus, how am I supposed to offer them forgiveness? They don't even know how much they hurt me. How am I supposed to offer them forgiveness? Because they haven't even asked for forgiveness and they're probably not gonna. How am I supposed to offer forgiveness when I don't even know if I care to give it to them? You know those moments when you're like angry and then you shut your mouth for a minute and Jesus like whispers to you and you're like, He said, I'm not asking about them. I'm asking about you. Because you know what? I, I'm, I guarantee you, I know this for a fact. I just know it in my heart. That when you and I die and we go stand before the judgment seat, you know what Jesus isn't going to ask? He's not going to say, hey, when, you were, when I asked you to offer forgiveness to this person, how did they handle that? He's not going to sit there and say, hey, when you offer forgiveness, did they, did they know how much they hurt you. No, no, no. Jesus is going to ask us one question. Did you embody the forgiveness I gave you? Because you see how they respond isn't, isn't between us, them and Jesus. It's between them and Jesus. I offer forgiveness about a year ago in that same situation. They don't have any clue I have. Does that matter? Nope. Do they know how much they hurt me? Nope. Did I at one point want them to feel what I had felt? Yep. And at some point I had to just put that at the feet of Jesus and trust that he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he's going to do. He is the judge and one day he will judge. My job? Embody the forgiveness that Jesus set as a gold standard. My job is to offer the forgiveness. And so I'll put it to you. You are the embodiment of the gold standard Christ has set for forgiveness. You are. Every one of you, myself included, you are the embodiment of the gold standard Jesus set for forgiveness. How are you doing? How are you doing? Servers, if, if you're a server, go ahead and stand up and head to the back. I know this is a little clunky. I'm going to keep preaching, but we're going to take the Lord's Supper at the end of this. But I want to read you this passage because you need to hear this because we need to be reminded of how we've been forgiven. Right? I've said it already this morning, uh, but when I read this, every time I read this passage, it's humbling and it's frustrating because it, it calls me utterly helpless. I hate that. I'm not utterly helpless. Yeah, I am. Right? Listen to this passage. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. That ain't me. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 
Listen, if Jesus can do it, surely through his Holy Spirit, he can empower you and I to do it, to offer forgiveness to others. And so as the servers come down and go ahead and serve, go ahead and serve. Hold on to your Lord's Supper. I'm going to keep preaching. I know it's different. It's okay. We'll get through this together. Actually, don't serve yet. I need to say this before you get the chance to even take the plate. And I'm serious in this right now, okay? I know I'm joking a little bit, but I'm dead serious. If you need to this morning, pass that plate and not take the Lord's Supper. Do that today. I'm okay wasting juice today. Because you know what the Word of God tells us is that if we have an offense against a brother or sister, we need to leave our offering at the altar, go and reconcile with them, and then come back and give our offering. And so if today you don't need to take the Lord's Supper, do not take the Lord's Supper. Because we do this in remembrance of him, because of how much he's forgiven us. And so if you haven't figured out that forgiveness stuff in your own life, do not take this. Pass over for today. Nobody's going to judge you. We all agree, we're not judging anybody in here this morning. I ain't taking the Lord's Supper this morning, all right? Not because I don't want to, but I got some work to do. Okay, you guys, come on now. Two questions I want you to think about as you're doing this, okay? Two things. And hold on to it because I'm going to give you a moment to do that. I'm going to pray for you and then you can do it. Two questions. One, what do you need Jesus to forgive you for this morning? And two, who do you need to embody forgiveness towards? Let's start, where, let's start with ourselves. Who do, I mean, excuse me, what do you need to ask Jesus for forgiveness for? And if you, you can get through that in the time I give you, then maybe you can focus on the second question. If you don't get the second question, you can do that later today. But here's what I want to tell you. This past summer, I got to go uh, to what everybody says is my last move with our high school students, our, our summer camp with our high school students. Hopefully it's not my last because I love that camp. Anyways, fourth night, guy gets up and preaches on forgiveness. And I mean, it is powerful preaching on forgiveness. Like, powerful. And, and there's one boy in our student ministry who, who'd been struggling with forgiveness for a while. And the funny thing is, is you, know, you get to know people, and I knew him pretty well. You could just see it. You could see, like, him walking around, and it's like, man, you just got you to forgive and give that up, dude. That we got done preaching. And as soon as this guy started preaching, man, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, well, there's thousands of kids here. You are preaching to one person, and he is right down the road from me. This is like, like I'm kind of, like, giggling a little bit, like, <laughs> take that, you know? Like, afterwards, he comes to me and says, hey, we got to talk tonight. I said, yes, we do. He sat down that night, and I gave him uh, some, not Philemon. I didn't give him Philemon. I gave him some scripture in Romans, and I said, I need you to read this, and I need you to understand that at some point, at some point, you're going to have to offer forgiveness and trust that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do, which is that he's the judge. And one day he will judge those who have hurt you. And I need you to read this passage until you get it. He said, okay, I can do that, I can do that. I said, okay, because the problem was, and this is a problem for all of us, okay, this is all of us. We're angry, we're hurt. We don't want to give forgiveness. But think about it for a second. Who is that really hurting? Do you think the person that, that hurts you and that you're so mad at and that you're holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness towards even cares? Probably not. Do they know? Probably not. Are they losing sleep? I doubt it. Who's it hurting? You. You. You're the one who's losing sleep. You're the one who's bitter. 
You're the one who's thinking through what you would say if you had an honest moment to be able to say it. Jesus doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that for you. Somewhere around 345. I would like to say I was asleep, but I probably wasn't. It's camp. I get a text from this student. All caps, I get it. Next morning, I see him at breakfast. Different kid. He is walking around like he is on clouds. Other boys, these are high school boys that don't notice anything. What's wrong with you this morning? You're different. You know what was different? He laid it at the feet of Jesus, trusted that God was going to judge at the end of the day and forgave somebody he needed to forgive. That's my prayer for you. That's my hope for you. That was Paul's hope for Philemon. We are to embody the gold standard of Christ's forgiveness. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you now in a moment of silence where we do something that you asked us to do in remembrance of you because of the high costs for us to experience forgiveness. Holy Spirit, we need you today. We need you. We need you every day, but we need you, especially in this moment of forgiveness. And so as we come before you, we want to reflect and remember how much we've been forgiven and we want you to move in our hearts to offer forgiveness. And at the end of the day, trust that you are who you say you are and you do what you say you're gonna do, that you're the judge. In a time, you will judge the righteous and the unrighteous. And so we come before you now praying as you taught us to. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen.